listening to the voices behind Women's Cooker Chat. That's Alex, Hannah, Georgie and Cassie. Coming up on today's podcast, we've got Adam Collins, who just loves the game of cricket, whether it be male or female, someone who's so passionate about the game. If you don't know who Adam is, he is a cricket journalist who has written for the likes of Evening Standard, Wisden, and he's also been on Sky Commentary this summer. We talked to Adam about all things cricket, including the 100 and how successful it was, about why the women's BBL is so successful, and why India are lacking and need to move the times and create a women's IPL. Joining us today, we have Adam Collins, journalist, broadcaster extraordinaire, an Aussie that we will permit this Aussie to join us because the Ashes haven't started yet, so that's okay. Yeah, so Adam, written for Crick Buzz, Cricket Paper, Evening Standard, Wisdom. You're all over the shop. You're all over the place. You've been writing, talking cricket, and you're one of those male voices. We love to have chat about the women's game, and we're all about anyone boosting the women's game, especially hearing men talk so passionately about it. So welcome to the pod. Thanks, Georgie. Thanks, Alex. I like when I'm introduced on various different interviews when it's not my own platform, that the different things that they pick when you were doing the, oh, I was thinking to myself, I wonder what she'll say I do. Because you can pick a number of things really, but saying, I haven't written for the Evening Standard for about four years, but it's true to say that I have written for the Evening Standard quite a bit some years ago. Um, so it's nice to change it up a bit. Uh, and it's true that I do some stuff with Crick Buzz and Crick Info and, and all the rest of it and um, and am going out to the Ashes shortly. So we can shelve all Ashes chat for the time being though. I, I'm, I'm quite happy to wait until, I think it starts on December 6th. And if I don't have to think about the Ashes until about December 4, uh, I'd be perfectly pleased with that. Well, I, I just, I know that you're on another podcast and I wasn't advertising that. So that was completely pied to the side. <laughs> yes, yeah. I also, I guess you, you dabble in a podcast or two. But yeah, so we're here today to talk all about women's cricket, as you know. Um, and so your journey into cricket and the women's cricket has been somewhat, what's the word, unique, I'm going to say. You know, yeah. you've gone from Prime Minister advising media advising to women's cricket to talk about men's cricket writing about it how did you go from advising Kevin Rudd to find yourself talking about women's cricket yeah it is an interesting um interesting path I suppose the first thing to note is that I knew very little about women's cricket uh, when I first became a journalist I watched the 2000 World Cup in New Zealand it was on television in Australia I'm not quite sure why that was on TV and practically nothing else from the women's game was at the time, but it was broadcast. So I did watch quite a bit of that, but notwithstanding that and the Zoe Goss um, moment uh, at the SCG in, in 1994, when she dismissed Brian Lara, I knew precious little. I mean, I knew about Belinda Clark and her extraordinary feats. I met uh, Mel Jones at a cricket clinic at my school uh, upon her return from the 98 Women's Ashes when she um, made a century on debut at Guildford. Uh, she came and did a clinic at my school and she taught me how to play the cut shot, which I've told her about uh, many times since. But really, it wasn't on my radar. And when I left politics in 2013, I worked in politics for a decade. As you say, worked for the PM and a number of other uh, politicians, principally in Canberra. And when we were voted out of office, it wasn't as though I left the building and thought, I want to become a cricket reporter, journalist, commentator, whatever. It was just that I had some ideas that I would like to write about at the time. I was on gardening leave. 
Uh, and I'll spare you the long story and I'll keep it short. What a piece I wrote at the very start kind of popped, as one would say then, and maybe they still say now, it went viral. Um, it wasn't a particularly special piece. So I'm sure if I went back and read it now, I'd be deeply embarrassed by the way I wrote the piece. But it was just of its time. It hit the spot. It was topical. It was about the ashes that were coming up in 13, 14. And it was the catalyst for me getting a job as a columnist on that series. But at the end of 13, 14 Ashes, I went back and got another real job. I worked in sort of finance for a year, a very sort of classic job you do when you finish being a political hack. Uh, did that for 12 months. And, and then the blood was slowly draining from my face as I realized that I knew I needed to do the cricket thing. I had this itch that needed to be scratched. So I sold my house, um, packed everything up and uh, basically came over and worked on the 2015 tour to the West Indies, Australia men's tour to the West Indies and then the Ashes. And when I was here at the Ashes, it became clear to me that why wouldn't me, as a, why wouldn't I, as a brand new freelancer working for lots of people, doing all sorts of interesting and creative things, why would I not be doing the women's Ashes as well? Of course, I should be doing the women's Ashes. And I knew precious little about either team, but I went along and covered that series. In fact, I missed the one day as I had to get back to Australia in the middle of the of the ashes and thus miss the women's one days. But I did get back in time for the, the Canterbury test uh, of 2015. And I was thoroughly all in. I was evangelical about the whole thing. Having not had much of a background with it, as soon as I saw it, as soon as I spent a week doing it and covering it and talking about it, I'm like, I must know more. I must treat this the same way that I treat the men's game. I'm all in. And so, yeah, I, I took to it yeah, with that evangelical zeal, it just happened to be marvelous timing because, you know, there's the women's ashes and press fast forward three months from there. And it's the first edition of the women's big bash league, which I um, did comprehensively. And then central contracts were just coming into Australia around that time. They might've been in for about a year, but it wasn't long. Put it this way, there weren't many professional cricketers in Australia playing the game who were women with the exception of the, of the national team. But yeah, by 2016, 2017, the WBBL was getting bigger and better. There was the Keir Super League that started over here in 2016. And I was living in the UK by that point and, and sort of following the sun. So I, I did that inaugural KSL. And that was a wonderful competition. And at that point, Georgie, I've got to say, I felt like I was more a campaigner than I was a journalist. I felt like I was an activist. And with having a political background, an activism background, that was totally cool with me. Like I liked arguing a corner, litigating a case, uh, trying to persuade people that this thing I had found, not that I was the first person to find women's cricket, but that I personally had found it recently. I'm like, you should come with me. This is a thing you should find as well. And from there, it reached a stage where women's cricket, I mean, this will come out clumsily, but reached maturation in a way, because suddenly there are professional cricketers everywhere. There's a pay deal in Australia in 2017, which changed the goalpost entirely for what was possible for domestic players. There was the 20. 17 World Cup over here, which was just the best thing I'd ever been involved in in cricket, you know, covering that for radio, television, everything else. And it almost didn't need me to be an activist anymore. And that was a wonderful realization that women's cricket has, has hit a point of saturation where I will still cover it, but I don't need to argue its corner on Twitter or I don't need to be out there explaining where it fits in. People get that by now. And that's quite a rewarding thing to have sort of seen something go from where it was to where it is and being part of that journey and now um, covering it uh, around the world as I do men's cricket and, and taking an, almost, an enormous amount of joy out of that. And obviously you've experienced all of that in Australia and it's no, it's no secret to anyone that Australia have been 
absolutely leading the way with the women's game with bringing in the contracts earliest you know and they have been at the, at the top of the level and they've really they've got that domestic structure in there is that something you've seen really grow across the world now and that's what's increasing the level of the women's game globally yeah, it's a good question. Look, it's worth remembering that England actually had central contracts first for the national team back in 2014. So they got the head start. Then Australia pulled even. Then Australia pulled well ahead uh, with the pay deal of 2017, what was possible through uh, both the WBBL and the WNCL. And now England have, they haven't bridged the gap as yet, but the domestic contracts that came in uh, last year and, and, and were fully better than this year, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy, the Charlotte Edwards Cup, the 100, bang, 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 have meant that the gap between what's possible as a semi-pro in Australia and a semi-pro in England is narrowing, which is great. But you're right, around the world, uh, there is a multi-speed economy and that's seldom a good thing, uh, whether it's in public policy or whether it's in sports administration. When you see uh, different streams running at different, different speeds, that means that you end up with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer when you're thinking about economics. Well, when you're thinking about sport, that means that you will see a team like Australia who will be difficult to touch in the short term while we have a situation where other parts of the world haven't been able to invest the same amount of money in. Uh, and the best example is New Zealand. So there used to be a big three, Australia, England and New Zealand, who, who won that aforementioned World Cup in 2000. Uh, now, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big two, but with Australia lamentably, and I say lamentably because not from any parochial perspective, but I, I like the competitive balance. Well, they are clearly a step ahead of England. And then there's India who are emerging. And that's a wonderful thing that the way they played at the 17 World Cup and the 2020 World Cup in Australia means they're not far away, but their domestic structure is nowhere near as sophisticated as it is in Australia or England either. So, and then there's South Africa who've got a, uh, I would call it like a golden generation, not a million miles away from what the Irish men had uh, coming through from about 2007 to 2015. South Africa are experiencing a similar thing with their women, having not a particularly well-developed domestic system, but all of their best players have been benefiting from the domestic circuit that exists in Australia, in England, and occasionally in India with that not quite women's IPL, whatever they call it. The um, I've even forgot what they call it now. The, uh, the, the, the exhibition games they tried to pretend were the women's IPL a couple of years ago. Um, and, and they've been involved in, in, those, um, in those tournaments too. So yeah, it's wonderful to see these huge names from countries uh, that have got a rich cricketing history bob up on the circuit, but there, there is a bit of a softer underbelly there, which needs to be addressed. And that only happens with uh, serious investment at the level below international level, which we've seen in Australia and England, and hopefully uh, other countries will follow suit pretty quickly. So do you think that's the key then to improving the standard of women's cricket in teams like India and South Africa investment? And if there were to be a women's IPL, what would you think about that? Yeah, investment's the sort of silver bullet, really, isn't it? It's not, you could say, is it correlation or causation? I think it's causation. I mean, the more money you dump into the sport, Hypercost, the great John Leather, um, women's cricket statistician, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, and, and he's very helpful too, by the way. Whatever, I'm work, whatever broadcast I'm working on or whatever I'm writing about the women's game, he'll, he'll routinely supply me with information and, and tell that story to a bigger audience, which has been brilliant. But he's been documenting year on year the difference between the WBBL and domestic cricket in England too, but specifically with the WBBL, the, the run rates the number of sixes hit per ball and other measurables, uh, strike rates for players and across teams. And it's all heading in one direction, uh, which is great. It means that with each, uh, with each season that it builds, women's cricket 
is becoming higher scoring. And I'm not, I'm not of the school of thought that women's cricket needs to replicate men's cricket in order to be um, at its best, by the way. I love the fact that the women's game is a truly 360-degree game, you know, because there's less pace on the ball. Women are forced to play all sorts of reverse and paddles that men aren't anywhere near as efficient at as women are. And I reckon it's a great thing. It's a nice comparative advantage, if you like. If you're, a, if you're someone who, who enjoys watching uh, a game played without needing brute force, well, women's cricket certainly would tick that box. So, yes, it's investment. And look, some countries, it's really interesting seeing their progress. Take Pakistan. Pakistan have had three levels of international contracts now since, oh, gosh, I reckon 2016, maybe 2015. They've been doing a great job. But then a couple of years ago, they had a setback with money. So, you know, it isn't, it's a bumpy ride. There are growing pains along the way. Women's domestic cricket is on television in Pakistan, right? I mean, it's not as though players are going out there to participate from um, England or Australia. And I'm not saying the standard is as good or, or anything close, but the very fact that there's that visibility, you go back 20 years before that, when the Khan sisters were bringing the first team out to Australia in, in 1998, 97, 98, and they did so amidst death, death threats in the newspapers. Uh, about the Pakistani women. Uh, they, they, I mean, this, this has been documented. Peter Oborn wrote about it in his history of Pakistani cricket. I mean, they, they flew, they left the country. I mean, there's this extraordinary story where they snuck out um, through, uh, was it a carpet selling business? And they had to pretend they were leaving with the, with the carpets that were being taken abroad. Some crazy wild story, which really should be a film at some stage, um, to get them to Australia. And thus begins uh, their story and, and, and Pakistan now. Yeah, they're not quite on pace with the four or five countries I've already mentioned. But if they're putting money into their central contracts, if they've got cricket on television, they will eventually reach that standard too. And the women's IPL, you, you asked about that as well, Alex. I mean, I can't believe it hasn't happened yet. I'm tipping that had they they won the World Cup at the MCG last year, it would have happened. Uh, had they won the World Cup at Lords in, in 2017, it, it might have happened as well. Jay Shah, who's the uh, General Secretary, I think now of the BCCI, certainly likes making announcements about women's cricket on social media. He likes the retweets. So, I mean, whatever whatever it takes. I mean, if, he, if he's doing it for social capital... I don't care. As long as the BCC, I don't care what the motivations are, uh, so long as that competition starts soon, because it is belated. They, they haven't got the head start uh, that the uh, that CA and the ECB have had through their domestic comps. And now the, the IPL will need to find a way to carve out its own space, its own window, and attract the best talent to it. And presumably, they'll have plenty of money to splash around uh, when the time is right. But yeah, it, it, do, it does beg a belief somewhat that we're still in purgatory of sorts with these exhibition games without having a, a proper fully formed competition. Yeah, sometimes it sort of seems like very much a, a tick box. Like we've had some women's cricket, it's there, we'll now get on to the big boys. And that seems at the moment to be like what they care about. I agree with you on the almost they're going to need to win a World Cup. And then the BCCI are going to be like, oh, actually, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. Whereas it doesn't seem to be working the same way for the men right now. But we can ignore them. Yeah, so obviously you mentioned the T20 World Cup at the MCG last year, which was just an absolute mega moment for the women's game. Were you there? I wasn't because my daughter was about three and a half weeks old on the 8th of March. So I made the decision, which was the right decision, uh, to stay in the UK for that and not go back. However, um, I did cover every day of that competition for Women's Crick Zone and for, and for The Guardian and others and, um, and was immersed in it, albeit from 10,000 miles away. And yeah, to see the, the MCG, which is my home ground, right? I mean, I've grown up at the MCG. 
It's where my football team play their home games. It's where I've been going to to watch cricket since I was the littlest of little boys. Like my first memories as a kid gravitate around that ground. And to think that where women's cricket was on that opening day of the Women's Big Bash League at the Junction Oval about four kilometres down the road. Yeah, sure. There was a great attendance that day, a couple of thousand people. But that we would consider that a great attendance in 2015, that would have been. And just four and a half years on from that, in the March of 2020, uh, on International Women's Day, I mean, yes, it was a mighty marketing campaign. And yes, Katy Perry was there. And yes, um, I think sports fans, and remember that Melbourne's a special place when it comes to attending sporting events. We love packing out the MCG. We love being known uh, as a people who go to sport and, and, and get out there and, and do the thing they do. So it was a bit of a perfect storm. Australia making the final, remembering they were, they were five minutes away from uh, not getting back on in that semi-final against South Africa. And it would have been an India-South Africa final in that scenario. Would have they got 87,000 people to that? In reality, no, they wouldn't have. It still would have been a good crowd, but it wouldn't have been a record-breaking crowd in quite the same way. So yeah, you're right. It was a mega moment. If nothing else, just because it, it gives us a focal point. We have something to look back in the rear vision mirror. Much as it was with Lords in 17, by the way, um, I've spent a lot of time with Claire Connor over the years and I hold her in the highest of high regard. And I did an interview with Claire. Um, oh, in fact, we did. We were on. We were on a, a, a show together. Maybe I don't know. Six months before the World Cup, and she was talking about packing out Lords, not sheepishly, but with a lot of caveats. She was talking about selling out Lords for the World Cup final, but in a most prudent way. As is Claire's disposition. Like Claire's a you know a, the bat and pad are close together because she's a she's a, a responsible grown up, unlike me. And she was sort of making the point that one needn't sort of get ahead of ourselves here. We would like to fill Lords, but let's not get down on ourselves if we don't. It's the very fact that it's going to be at Lords. And my thinking at the time, I was like, fuck it. Let, of course, let's fill out, fill Lords. You know, of course we should. You know, why, why wouldn't we be thinking about filling the joint? And maybe that that is kind of the attitude that was taken to the World Cup in Melbourne. It was that kind of fuck it. Like, let's have a pop. And if we don't get close, then so be it. If 73,000 people show up at the MCG, that is still a mega women's cricketing event. And we shouldn't be shy or embarrassed about not reaching the goal. And the truth is 87,000 people is still about 9,000 short of capacity at the G for a cricket game. And the main driver behind that was that it was the early seeds of COVID. And there was a little bit of COVID anxiety before it was even called COVID, actually. That weekend that was just bedding in where some people had contracted the coronavirus in Melbourne, which might have been a disincentive for some people to come. But they certainly sold more than 90,000 tickets. We're not blaming the women's final for spreading COVID. Well, it, it, was a, it was a bit of a spreader event in Melbourne at the time. We won't, we, won't, we won't drill down too much into that, Georgie. So just on the topic of that final there, you mentioned Australia were five minutes away from not reaching the final. And then England obviously didn't get their chance to play their semi-final mm. because of the weather. And we're used to rain in England, but this is why we have rain reserve days. And there wasn't one of those there, which obviously caused uproar. I remember frantically, angrily tweeting about this because I was not a happy bunny. Something like that still happening in, well, I don't know what year we're in. 2020 is quite a big deal, but I think we've sort of moved on from that, don't you? Yeah, I think that it was a flaw in how the competition was conceived of that they wouldn't have rain reserve days for the semi-final, and they all knew it. I don't think it was with a agenda malice associated with it by that i mean i don't think it was because it was the women's cop they didn't have reserve days i think they just cocked it up 
I think it's one of those ones when you're looking, you know, at conspiracy or cock up, it's almost always cock up. That that's what happened there. And we realized the semi-final day at the SCG. I mean, everybody realized the forecast was dire. And we were all, everyone was on the phone, myself included, like peppering the organizing committee saying, this is going to be a disaster. You're going to have two washed out semifinals. You, you've got to find a way to fix this. Play it, play the semifinals in Melbourne on Saturday if you need to. Whatever it takes to have the semifinals completed, do it. And in What's the end, really funny a- as well is that English people think it doesn't rain in Australia. I lived in Sydney for a year. It rains a lot. And it we does. just don't think about it because we only see it, the sunshine. It does. And, and look, even though Sydney, um, Sydney, uh, the, the stat goes that there have been more days of cricket, more days of test cricket rained out at the SCG than any venue in Australia, which I like to point out often as a Melbourneian with Melbourne having the reputation as being a, a pretty rainy city. But yeah, so... Look, I, I, yeah, that was a, a deeply frustrating day for Heather Knight's team. And not just her, though. I think for everybody who's, who's had a vested interest in seeing the women's game be everything that it can be, when little things like that happen, well, they're not little things, they're big things. But when what, what, what appear to be like a scheduling blue can materially affect a, a competition like that. And it nearly happened at the 2018 World Cup in the Caribbean, which I was out there covering as well. So this was the Women's T20 World Cup that year when we missed, I think, the first two days in Antigua, uh, in St. Lucia due to rain. And it was like, well, is it possible to move the entire competition to Antigua and, and get out of this um, this dreadful forecast? We got lucky there. It didn't rain um, during any other game and, and they got the, the entirety of the, the competition away with the exception of two or three games. But yeah, it, look, again, it was, it was just one of those things where there wasn't good planning around having a reserve day. It will never happen again. And you can be sure of that. There'll never be a tournament again when there's a knockout stage where there's not a reserve day, men's or women's. And yes, it's just unfortunate that England had to be booted from the competition uh, that way when they were coming into a a decent bit of form. Uh, And yeah, a case of who knows really there. And they, I suppose, get the chance to, to play at a World Cup again in New Zealand in, I suppose, we're only about four or five months away, aren't we now? Uh, when they can defend their, their 50 over World Cup. And believe me, there will be reserve days for the semifinals there. I wanted to move it forward to summer 2021 with the 100. After being delayed by COVID by a year, we kicked off the competition with a standalone women's match between Manchester Originals and the Oval Invincibles. How important do you feel that it was for the competition to open up with a standalone women's match being a a complete landmark moment and something we've never seen in domestic cricket in England? Yeah, really important because it helped bolster the argument that the women's comp and the men's comp were on a par. Now, in practical terms, they actually weren't. The pay disparity between men and women in the hundred needs to be addressed quite quickly. Um, again, I, I don't sort of, I don't suggest for a moment it was like some wild conspiracy to do over the women playing, but they they, they missed the mark there. And I'm sure that'll be rectified uh, in the years to come because yeah, the idea that the, the lowest paid man would be earning more than the highest paid woman didn't really stack up. So they needed to do other things to reinforce the, uh, the primacy of, of the women's competition and having the first game, as you say, standalone on terrestrial television at a test playing venue. I think they got about 14,000 people to the Oval that night, which was a tremendous crowd. And crowds like that we saw throughout the comp, didn't we? Even though they were played as curtain raisers, you know, I'm not... I'm not a massive fan of, of doing it that way forever. You know, I think double headers have had a place and have a place, but 
I like to think that much as it is with the WBBL, where there's no such thing as double headers anymore, there were loads of them early on, and now it has its own standalone window. I wonder whether we might reach a stage with 100 in a few years' time when they're like, yeah, we actually don't need to play the women's game first. We, we've got we've got enough faith in the competition as a draw card uh, that it doesn't need hand-holding. But at least initially, I kind of get it. They were trying to do the whole two teams, one club thing, as it is uh, in the WBBL, and that's been quite effective. And that was a nice way of betting that in by having the women's games preceding the men's games. But yeah, absolutely, that first night was something special. And also, in a weird way, COVID almost did the women's game a favour on that front because originally they were going to be played at the smaller grounds. And you, as much as people like to say, oh yeah, I would definitely go along to those, you just can't be sure. But when people are coming in, even just for the second half of the women's games, and as the tournament went along, we saw more and more people and that, crowd was increasing so maybe we can thank covid for something there yeah as i say it's 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 a slightly vexed question because i am not entirely sure that the, the double headers are, are a good thing I, I i don't really know it's 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 gray area for me but you're right in as far as making sure the games are played on test venues and you're dead right that they wouldn't have all been played on test venues otherwise that was absolutely a positive because you know you, you talk to players who who have been around the traps for a while, they haven't had huge amounts of experience playing on those grounds. And there is something special about playing on a test venue. I wrote this year about uh, Sophie Eccleston, who's the number one ranked bowler in the world. And, you know, she, she's clearly the best bowler in the world for mine across the formats. She hasn't played at Lords ever. There's not been a women's international at Lords with the exception of the 17 World Cup final since 2013, which predates her career by four years or three years sorry Sophie made a debut in 2016 so and then I mean and this is no this is no slight on her brother or the um or the village cup final but her brother was playing in the village cup final uh which is a a wonderful grand old competition at Lords on the same day that Soph was playing a one-day international at Worcester and I just wrote a column about it saying look I'm not saying that we should play the entire women's program at test playing venues when England are playing because there is something special around the grounds that have invested in the women's game, Fortress, Chelmsford, Taunton, uh, Hove. Uh, there are others who've done a fine job, support, uh, Leicester have done a fine job supporting women's cricket and they shouldn't get those fixtures ripped away from them. The, the boutique grounds work quite well uh, when you sell them out, especially at night. Um, but I, I don't think it should be either or. Having a standalone one-off one-day international each year at Lords for the women, I think would be quite the event. I think it would draw a, a considerable crowd. You'd probably ensure that it was one of the games on, on free-to-air television, so I've got as much coverage as possible. Um, of course, remembering that every game on free-to-air is also broadcast on Sky, and Sky um, do a marvellous job covering women's cricket and have done so for 25 years. I'm not just saying that because I work with them, but you know, Sky have been there since the very, very start. They predate the coverage of pretty much everyone when it comes to the women's game and then you, you would get you know a full press box you would have radio coverage you would have you know you would have the works and it would be at lords and whether lords should be seen as more special than other grounds i mean let, let's let's forget about that debate for a sec the fact of the matter is it is seen that way whether it should be okay but it is so uh, yeah that's where i i think ground politics is interesting the very fact that middlesex had never played there middlesex women had never played at lords until uh, April 2018, and that was an exhibition game against the MCC. They've never played a, a women's county championship game at Lords. And again, I know there's ground politics associated with with a ground like that, but yeah, it's the London Spirit playing on there a couple of times or a few times is a big step in the right direction. And that was, as you say, made possible because COVID changed the entire configuration of the competition. 
And this isn't just an issue we see at international level. It also happens at varsity level as well. I'm not sure if you know about the Stump Out Sexism campaign, mm. but they're campaigning so that the women's varsity team get the same rights to play on the main ground at Lords and not just the nursery ground. Yeah, I did see that. Look, I don't get quite as emotionally involved in student cricket and it's right to be at Lords anyway. I appreciate that Oxford and Cambridge have played there for a couple of hundred years and, you know, but I, but I also see that Eton and Harrow play there and other school games are played there through the years. So I obviously am supportive of, of the women's varsity game being played at Lords if there's going to continue to be a varsity game played at Lords full stop. I'd probably come at it from the perspective of a ground that's so congested with so much cricket on it, professional cricket that is, whether we whether Lords should still be a venue where there are school games and where there are university games annually, I'm not so sure that, that that's appropriate either. So in that, you know, if, if they weren't going to elite schools, would they be getting those opportunities that they wouldn't be? So yeah, I probably come at that from a slightly different starting point. And on the topic of playing at Lords, obviously we had the hundred final at Lords and mm. we chatted to a few of the Oval Invincibles girls and they were buzzed that they were going to get to play the final at Lords, having only ever played on the nursery ground in like Bucks finals and stuff. So I think that was quite a huge moment going there as well. What were your thoughts on the final? Because actually, I think the women's final was way more exciting than the men's one, which is quite fun. No, fair enough. Objectively, it was a great game. Really interesting game. of crit- Well, I mean, I say a great game. It was one-sided in the end. But I think by that point of the competition, the beauty of having so much exposure uh, with the 100 for the women who are playing every day preceding the men and all free to access, Sky had it on YouTube every day. I mean, you know, there was no barrier for entry, whether it was a, a BBC game or otherwise, was that by the end of the comp, people kind of got that Tash Barrett was was on fire and they understood where Denis Van Niekerk fitted in. You know, you could, there'll be, scores of other players or a handful of other players at the very least who people had a bit of an emotional relationship with. They knew that Alice Capsey was this star on the make and who was the next big thing in, in women's cricket. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that was, a, again, a very important day. When we look back in, in, in 10 or 20 years' time and we're having conversations like this, we'll look back at the first Kia Super League. We'll look back at the first Women's Big Bash League. We'll look back at professional contracts the Women's World Cup final in 17, the 2019 uh, World Cup in Australia, the 2018 World Cup in, in the Caribbean as well. All of these events that have mapped the course of women's cricket in the last five or six years have all played their role. And absolutely, the Women's 100 will be part of that conversation uh, and not least having the final at Lords uh, on a Saturday afternoon with a whole bunch of players who by the end of the comp, you know, I, I do think uh, spectators had buy-in with, whereas they wouldn't have before. And also, just quickly on the 100, we did get to see a few Aussies in action, Sammy Joe Johnson and AJ Wellington, but we didn't get to see the big gun players like Meg Lanning and Elise Perry. How much of a difference do you think they would have made to the competition? Yeah, a big one. Uh, If you had the whole travelling cohort of Australian contracted players engaging with the 100 next year, and I think that will be the case, remembering that they all signed, well, a great number of them did sign up to come, you know, before COVID, didn't they? When it was originally set out, there were going to be loads of Australians coming. And even after COVID, it was only really when it became difficult to leave and get back into the country for their international commitments against India that a number of them changed their mind. And that's fair enough. But in years to come, it'll be like the Kia Super League was. 
I, I remember when the Keir Super League and the Women's Big Bash League were running side by side, it wasn't so much about an English competition and an Australia competition. It was almost like women's all-stars. You know, it was almost like the best players from around the world were finding their way into these six Keir Super League teams. And now it's the same with, with, uh, with the 100 as it is with the WBBL. So, and I think that'll continue to be the case that if you're a high profile, nationally contracted player, um, that you will endeavor to be part of that competition. And look, I think scheduling is crucial to this. If I were running the world, if I were running at the ICC, more to the point, I would carve out an exclusivity window for the Women's Big Bash League, for the 100 and for the Women's IPL. I would say that in those three months, let's call them three months, you do not play international cricket. I think that I wouldn't cannibalize those competitions because we've had that in the Big Bash where women have to leave early prematurely. Often the South Africans have been in this boat, the Indians too. They've had to leave at the pointy end of the, of the finals because they've got to head off and play a game for South Africa or India. Now, I've got no problem with putting country above club or franchise, but why can't we have both? Why don't we um, show some vision with the schedule and make sure that we carve out space for the Women's Big Bash League is an early adapter. The 100 is putting so much money into women's cricket at the moment. And the women's IPL, because we know what that can be. Yeah, there might be some frustration in other countries at just highlighting the big three. But let's be realistic. You can only probably get away with doing it for three months a year, like we see with the men's IPL. Uh, and, and let that have its own block, its own window each year. And hopefully that will mean the international cricket can be played outside of that. And we can kind of have everything all at the same time. Yeah, and on the topic of momentum, obviously we're looking ahead now to the women's Ashes, which is two of the big dogs going at it in the Ashes. Always huge. You're an Aussie, but we'll let you off. Because does your daughter count as a pommy? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, She's both an Australian citizen and an English citizen, but uh, little Winnie was born here um, to an English mother. And when she turned one back in February, Valentine's Day, she was born on, as it happens, which is ever so cute. A few of the the England players did send her a a message and and the theme throughout the messages was pretty clear that that she will play for England, not Australia. So I don't think I'm in a position to push back on that. But yeah, not that I mind who wins uh, international cricket matches. I try and remain fiercely impartial, not because I you know, not, not sort of some faux partiality, but mostly because I just don't care who wins. I, I, I get more invested in the personal storylines than I do um, that of the team. As for the women's ashes, yeah, it'll be hard to knock off Australia for obvious reasons. Um, but I do wonder whether England might be in a decent position to have a decent dart at them in the T20s. A lot of it comes down to the order as well of, of where the matches are played in, in a multi-format series. I reckon that one reform to a multi-format series would be uh, the way in which the points are allocated. I would like to see more points for the test and more points for the one day and, and, and an adjustment with the T20s. I think it's probably best to go five points for the win in a test match, three points for a win in the one day internationals and two points for the win in the T20s. Not for any other reason than the fact that it'll help create a, a climate where teams are keener to win the test match. We're seeing test cricket um, almost on trial for women at the moment in a good way because we're seeing more of it and thus it's receiving more scrutiny and the more scrutiny, the better. But I, yeah, I, I tend to think that what we need now is a breakthrough test match where we see a result and we don't see a draw. And the best way to achieve that in the context of a multi-format series is giving an incentive there with points to do exactly that and go after the test win. So yeah, a bit of a watch this space on that to see whether they change the points at some stage. I don't think they will before this series, but one to look ahead for in the future. Do you think it has an impact on the result of the game, the four-day, five-day debate regarding a women's test match? Totally. Absolutely, it does. Um, 
I've been at a number of women's tests and, you know, yeah, they get more overs in per day, which is great because that's a, that's a big problem in men's test cricket. And it can be a problem in women's test cricket too with over rates, especially when uh, what we saw with India at Bristol earlier this year, which was which was pretty bad um, with uh, Madhali Raj um, not showing a lot of urgency in the field. Alas, that's not really the, the question you're asking though, is it? It's about five-day, four-day. The, the issue with four-day cricket, whether it's first class or, or test cricket, is that if you lose a day, it really does compromise the chance of getting a result. So I would like to see, at, at the very least... I'd like to see a fifth day for women's test cricket implemented in the same way that we had a sixth day implemented for the World Test Championship final this year. At the very least, I'd like them to say, look, there's effectively a reserve day. So if you lose X overs, you can play them on, on the fifth day. I think that's a decent compromise. And if we don't lose time to weather, well, so be it. It's a four-day game. And if we do, then, then we don't end up in a situation as we did uh, in the India-Australia test match recently, where India bossed that game for pretty much three days, and yet they couldn't press home the advantage on the final day because they ran out of time. And they ran out of time because they missed two evening sessions in totality. They lost about 80 or 90 overs in that test match. And when you're looking at a test that's only going to have 400 overs in it, uh, that's, a, that's a huge slab of time. I wish they could have finished that game uh, on a fifth day used, as I said before, as like a backup day if required. And do you think women should play more test matches? Because like you said, we had the test match at Bristol and then we had the one in Australia. And do you also think that one day we will see a women's world test championship? First half of your question, absolutely. The more the better. Um, I don't know whether it'll be a WTC setup because the difference is men's test cricket, so much bilateral men's test cricket was played. It was ungainly it needed a, an organizing structure and the WTC has afforded it that with women's test cricket it's just trying to find a place for it to start with and I think we found it the multi-format point system I think works um, I would like to see the ICC championship which at the moment only deals with one day internationals what I wouldn't mind seeing is the test match being folded into that so the ICC championship at the moment it's like a de facto qualifier for the world cup in the, the top four teams in that are the top four seeds for the World Cup. And so it goes across a three-year cycle. I just don't think that's that's quite enough. I think that that could be a lot more, the women's championship. And if you bundled test cricket into it and said that every um, series being played as part of a championship will include, uh, yeah, will, will include a test match, even if they don't play T20s, I'd like them to play T20s, but even if they don't, that means they've got to play a minimum of three one-dayers and a four-day test match with a reserve day, as, as discussed before, um, and it all adding towards the, the championship, I think there'd be more on the line there across the three-year cycle that they play that in uh, in the non-World Cup years. So there's food for thought there. But yeah, we, we've found the way, haven't we? It's including it within the structure of the multi-format system. It, it makes sense. And look, it's a travesty that Susie Bates has never played a test match. Uh, she's not the only one, but the fact that she's been playing for a country um, with great honour since 2006, she's been one of the greats of her generation. Um, she's broken countless records for her country. The fact that Susie Bates has never had the chance to, to pull on the whites for her country is nothing short of disgraceful. And look, I'm not saying that's the fault of any one particular decision maker, but um, as Susie's pointed out before in many interviews, uh, a big part of it is that New Zealand cricket haven't had the resources to tip into this and hosting test match cricket costs money. And it is for a lot of countries, a loss leader and women's cricket full stop is a loss leader at the moment. Won't be forever, but at the moment for boards, uh, it is an investment. They're not making a return, uh, much of a return on their investment with women's cricket right now. That hopefully will change into the future. So boards are like, well, 
why would we want to chuck a test match in there when the best return on our existing investment comes through T20? And I don't want to like, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm looking too far in the rear vision mirror either. T20 cricket is the future of the women's game uh, alongside 50 over cricket. Um, but T20 cricket is the most accessible format of the game at the moment. And we should embrace that for what it is. But Cricket Australia, only as recently as 2016, they mooted getting rid of 50 over cricket in Australia and just playing T20s. And that would have been a, that would have been a travesty, um, an absolute travesty. That's the fact that some people inside CA did not want to see women play 50 over cricket anymore, it's a joke. Now, I would extrapolate that out to test cricket. I would say that if you have on the back page of the newspaper through the, the main part of the summer, that our test playing stars in men's cricket are held up as the most important players, as the most prestigious uh, form of the game, as the um, most historically textured form of the game. That's a bad way of explaining it, but so so many layers to it, uh, such a, a, a glorious spectacle across a number of days. Why should we say to girls growing up, falling in love with the sport for the first time? Oh, sorry, but not for you. Or oh, maybe once every two years, but no, not really. It'll be a novelty when you play. Yeah, there'll be one fewer day and, you know, you'll have to make other compromises to play. No, I, I would take the view that instead we should be looking at girls' multi-format cricket at, at a junior level and through the the, the, the the domestic system we now have with the Rachel Hayhoe Flint and the Charlotte Edwards Trophy. <clears throat> what I would love to see is some um, women's three-day cricket folded into that. that. That, to me, makes a lot of sense as the next step. Across the groups that have been brought together, um, you ask almost any woman playing in the semi-pro structure, they always say, we don't play enough cricket. They played a lot more this year than before, but historically a complaint has been, we actually don't play enough cricket. Well, if you implemented one round of three-day cricket, in other words, if you play every team once, seven, seven games in the regional setup we've now got, that would add 21 days of cricket to the roster. That's not a back-breaking amount of work. Um, 21 more days of cricket would, would get you a domestic structure, which would mean that there'd be a price signal to other countries saying that, well, if England's doing a domestic three-day system, you better do it in Australia as well with the WNCL. You better go back to it in India. They had it in India until five years ago, but you better go back to it in India. You know, if you want to play test cricket in South Africa, well, there's an easy way um, to get up to scratch. It's by playing three-day cricket there as well. And so it goes. So it's going to require leadership and leadership often is expensive uh, and and often uh, means... uh, sort of not getting rewarded for it in the short term. Um, But I think the only way we're going to see consistent women's test cricket is if A, it's folded into some existing structure. And I think the ICC championships for that and and in turn, the multi-format series that have become de rigueur between Australia and England and now India as well. So that's A and B that we see it being played at a domestic level. And we're going to need some leadership on that front. So uh, when it comes to podcasts like yours and, and the work that you're doing, keep the pressure on. And you touched briefly there on the Rachel Hayes, Flint Trophy, the Charlotte Edwards Cup, and also bring potentially a test match three-day kind of thing in there. I'm thinking the Enid Bakewell Shield, you know, that kind of vibe. But nice. um, So we've got, thank you, thank you, been working on that one. Yeah, so we've obviously got the regional set up, and this year the ECB are funding uh, a sixth regional player at each of those, with some adding more in themselves, like the Diamonds have added another two, and the Thunder have added yep. one. Looking at that, we've got some really good youngsters coming through. Who have you got your eye on as the star of the next year and the future? Yeah, this might sound a bit cliched, but Alice Capsi, in the, everyone's talking about Alice Capsi right now, but I, f- I first saw Alice play about three years ago for Surrey, and she was a striking addition to the team there as a 14-year-old, I think. Um, so you see a player like that come through. 
and to use her as the case in point, she has gone from being a Surrey player to becoming a KSL player in the last year of the KSL to now being in the women's hundred and last week getting a contract to be a professional player for the first time. She's going to play for England, right? But had she been a generation or two before, she would have been a very capable young cricketer playing in the Women's County Championship, which was dilapidated. The five division Women's County Championship was not fit for purpose. It did not bridge the gap between what it was and 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 what we wanted international women's cricket to be. Uh, it wasn't fit for purpose. So you had that competition and the KSL where for about five or six weeks each year, uh, you get the chance to mix it with the best. And then you would revert back to being a county cricketer again. Uh, and it just didn't have enough there. There was It was lacking. Now, a player like Capsi will have uh, the aforementioned 50 over and 20 over comp each year at a bare minimum. Um, of course, there's already the, the existing A tours that take place too. But she'll be given every opportunity. Uh, by the time she's sort of 20, 21, she'll be a vastly experienced cricketer. And she won't be daunted by walking out on the big stage when she's picked for England. It's an important point, this. Uh, a lot of players would come through from county cricket before. They're playing for England. They're playing for their country. They're on television. And they've never been equipped for anything like that. I remember having a number of conversations with Tammy Beaumont about this uh, when around when she won the, she was one of the Wisdom Cricketers of the Year in, in 2018. I wrote the essay for the Almanac about Tammy um, and, and interviewed her for that um, as part of that award. And like she remembers, you know, everyone talks about Tammy's stats between uh, the first, I think it was the first six years of her international career and the six that have followed and, and the chalk and cheese, the, the contrast they present. Well, a lot of that's to do with the fact that in the first her, first half of her international career, the domestic system was cooked. It was completely stuffed. Uh, and since they've been able to uh, make considerable changes to that, it has given her the chance to take the next step. And it'll mean that the next generation coming through won't have to struggle and wait and wait and wait. They'll have all cricket all the time. Um, they'll be paid and trained as professionals and they'll be prepared to, to make the, the step up when the time's right. And that's just a glorious thing. Uh, and a lot of credit needs to go to the people at the ECB, not least Claire, um, for realising that that was the next natural investment. Uh, there was a lot of things they could have chosen to do, but um, tipping money into that in keeping with their strategic plan um, makes loads of sense to me. Yeah, and that seems like quite a good place to round off. On a positive note, looking to the future, and um, thanks to previous guest of ours, Claire Connor, absolute legend, one of those people that you just, she, she's got it down, you know. She knows what she's about and she's, she's going to get it done. So, yeah, so Adam, just before we round up, um, where can our listeners find you on social media? Okay, uh, well, uh, Twitter would be the obvious place. Collins, Adam, uh, and, uh, you know, all the other places that people do their thing. My show's called The Final Word Cricket Podcast. We, um, we, uh, we've been going since 2015. Indeed, one of our very first episodes of The Final Word was recorded in the commentary box at Canterbury after the 2015 Women's Test. I remember it fondly with um with Izzy Westbury and Anna Lanning, uh, who um who is a domestic uh, women's player and of course the sister of the Australian captain. Uh, Jeff and I had the two of them on uh, on a very very early episode, maybe episode three or episode four. We've made about four hundred episodes now, uh, and we we publish uh, a number of times per week. So if you like uh, hearing about uh, cricket from all angles, all around the world, men's, women's, domestic, international, all the rest, uh, the final word cricket podcast. Is the place to be, and I'll be in Australia in a couple of weeks from now, um, commentating the men's Ashes and hopefully at the Women's World Cup uh, in March as well. And you know, we at Women's Cricket Chat always keen for a, a collab or 
collab. Some people say collab, and I'm going to go with collab. Yeah, I think, so I think it's collab. I think the jargon is collab. Oh, right. I'm just not down with the kids. You, you're telling Sorry. me. Right. Oh, all right. I know. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I am much older than you, and yet I know that. Well, make of that what you will. Oh, Christ. I got told. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam, for chatting to us. It's been absolutely fab. And also, we just love I love seeing your little daughter on your social medias. Before <laughs> we get into the future England cricketer that she's going to be so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy dad schedule your busy cricket schedule to chat to us and go well good luck in australia um you know definitely come back though don't remember don't get tempted to stay you want to come back no, I, won't. I won't i'm I, I as i say i've put down roots in england but no alex georgie uh, thanks for doing what you're doing um around the women's game it's really important that, that shows like yours have popped up and covering the women's game extensively and exclusively uh, that's a great thing uh, so more power to you both massive thank you to adam for coming on and being a guest on the podcast it was really interesting to hear his thoughts about the women's game and how it can be improved further and we also look forward to seeing his little girl winnie play for england in the future all jokes aside adam was a lovely interviewee he had so much to say and you can really feel his passion and enthusiasm for the women's game and to all our listeners if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing you can follow us on twitter at w cricket chat on instagram at women's cricket chat and if you want to give us a like on facebook we are women's cricket chat if you'd like to give our personal Twitters a follow, then it's at Hannity1194, at GeorgieHeath27, at Cassie Coombs98, and I'm at Alex Jane Pereira on Twitter. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time. It's got to go. It's got to try.